Good morning, CBC. Yeah, that was fantastic. All right. Well, like John said, my name is Mike. I'm one of the pastors here at Chantilly Bible Church. I'm tempted to even start off this morning by saying, He is risen. Indeed. That was, hey, I like the shortened version, the TLDR. Uh, yeah, no, it's good. He is risen indeed, right? Last week, if you were here with us, and like Matt mentioned for the last couple of weeks, we've been celebrating the Easter story, the resurrection of Jesus, the central part, not just of our lives or our story, but the central event in human history when Jesus Christ came back from the dead. And so as a teaching staff, we were just thinking about it in the power of the last two weeks. We said, I think it's wise just to hit pause on Exodus for one more week so that we can unpack some of the depths and the truth of the reality of the resurrection. In that note, saying, how do we actually talk more, uh, instead of just about the reality of the resurrection, but the ramifications of the resurrection in our life? Or, as uh, the Apostle Paul might say in Romans 6, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we, too, walk in newness of life. But what does like, that newness of life really look like, or really mean? And, and clearly we can't unpack that in just one sermon. But perhaps the best way to answer what that newness of life looks like in response to the resurrection of Jesus is to go back to the scriptures, to take a look at the story, specifically at those who are eyewitnesses to the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and see how that made them a new people with a new life, a newness of life. So we're going to look together at the book of Acts, uh, starting in chapter 3. So if you want to go ahead and turn there, you can. Um, uh, but like uh, Milt said last week, the resurrection of Jesus changes everything about us. Um, and we're going to see that here in the lives of people in the book of Acts. Now, if you're not familiar with the book of Acts, let me give you a little bit of a context. So the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John talk about the life of Jesus. Talk about Jesus coming into the world, living that sinless life, going to the cross for our sin, and rising again. The book of Acts continues that story of the life in Jesus. And it's often talked uh, about in context of the birth of the church. So when Acts chapter 1 opens up, it's the resurrected Jesus still on earth with his people. And it says Jesus was on earth for 40 days, meeting with hundreds of people and giving many convincing proofs of the reality of his new life and his resurrection. And while he was on earth for those 40 days, he told his disciples, he said, I am leaving, but when I leave, I'm going to give you the promised Holy Spirit. So Jesus does ascend. He leaves. He's at the right hand of the Father where he is right now in his physical body waiting to return to come in victory and glory. But when he left, he did do what he promised. And in Acts chapter 2, he sends his Holy Spirit to his uh, followers, his beloved people, and it changes them and it totally upends their life and gives them the newness of life. And then in chapter 3, where we're going to pick up our story, full of the Holy Spirit, this is the birth of the church out into the world. And so we're going to see here, in, starting in chapter 3, what this newness of life looks like. So I just want to let uh, Scripture kind of speak to us. So we're actually going to read, as you can see, kind of some big chunks here. We're going to look at the first half of chapter 3. We're going to kind of skip over the second half of chapter 3, then pick things back up in the first half of chapter 4. So if you want to follow along in your Bibles, you can. If you just want to listen to me share, we're going to read what happens when the resurrection changes who we are. So let's start in verse uh, chapter 3, verse 1. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a man lame from birth was being carried, 
whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, Look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up. And immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. And then Peter sees the crowd gathering, so he takes the opportunity and shares with them the gospel. The one who healed this beggar is the one who came and healed the world by dying on the cross for sin, rising again, and he calls the people to repentance. And then we pick the story back up in chapter 4, verse 1. And as they, Peter and John, were speaking to the people, the priest and the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of men came to about 5,000. And on the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem, with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in their midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a no notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further, had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people for all were praising God for what had happened. And this is God's word.
So let's look together at this story again to see how the resurrection brings a new life to a new people. So firstly, we're going to see that the resurrection of Jesus gives a new power. And what does that mean? Okay, let's take a look at the passage. So as Peter and John walk past the beggar, the beggar asks them for a gift. And what do they respond with? If you look back in uh, chapter 3, verse 6, Peter says, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. Now this is a remarkable statement in this moment for a number of reasons, but at least two. First, do you see here? He commands a power to heal this crippled man. And that power is in what? The name of Jesus. Now think about what Peter's saying here. Jesus has just recently been publicly tried, convicted, and executed. And that shook up the whole world around him. And although Jesus had appeared to many, showing proof of his resurrection, it is after his ascension that there was still debate and denial of the reality of that resurrection, and surely a debate and denial about his claim to be God. So in the midst of that, Peter is saying here, not only is this Jesus alive, but, his res- uh, but he is alive in power. Not only does he reign over his own death and his own life, he reigns over every death. And every life. Not only is he alive, but he is making others alive. So when Peter tells this man to be healed in the name and power of Jesus, Peter is essentially saying, Beggar, Jesus is not just over, Lord over your life, over your healing, over this moment right now. Jesus is the Lord over all lives and all healing and all moments. And the second thing that Peter says here, which he actually says right before this, is just as astounding. What does Peter tell the beggar? He says, I don't have any gold or silver, but what I do have, I give to you. What I do have. So you see, Peter doesn't simply say, hey, I know Jesus. He's up in heaven. Let me pray to him and ask the power from heaven to come down and heal you, which he could do that. No, no, Peter says, that power of Jesus is alive here, in me. I have it. Peter says uh, that this resurrected king, who has all the power over all things for all time, and in this unimaginable grace, that power is in me. That all-powerful king is working in me. Not my own power, but Christ in me. So we ask the question then, How did Peter get this power in him? Well, Jesus promised Peter he would get it. If you remember, in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, when Jesus says to his followers, if you remember this, before he ascends, he says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses. Peter received this new power when he received the gift of the promised Holy Spirit of God in him. And beloved church, hear this. This is the same promise that you and I have. The gift of God's Spirit in us. God makes it clear when we believe, when we give ourselves to Jesus Christ in faith, we are made new. And when we're remade in that moment, we are given the gift of the Holy Spirit. And with that, we are given the gift of this new power alive in us. And it's a supernatural power. 
It's a power to overcome sin. It's the power to be bold in our faith. It's the power to love sacrificially, to be generous, to be holy. It's the power to repent, to trust in grace and press on in hope and perseverance. It's the power to see God move in and through us in wonderful, miraculous ways. So you might be thinking right now, well, I haven't seen any of those miracles in my life. You know, I haven't never seen a healing or I've never spoken a prophecy or done anything supernatural. Beloved, again, hear this. If you today belong to Jesus, you are a miracle. There is nothing more impossible in this world than someone who is dead to God in their sin being, a ma- being made alive to God in faith. That transformation is miraculous. So if today you believe in the risen Jesus, you are a miracle more wondrous than any other story in history. And if you don't believe me, what does God tell us is the prime example of his power among us? Was it when he created the world? Was it when he parted the Red Sea? Was it in the virgin birth? No, listen to what God says through the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 1. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. The gospel, the story of our salvation through faith in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, the supernatural, powerful working of God miraculously in and through us is not the eventual goal, goal of a mature faith. It is the way our faith began. And as resurrected people, like Peter, we are people, a new people of a new power that's given to us by God's grace through God's Spirit working in us. And this new power, as it's in us and it changes us, it gives us a new story to tell. Or in other words, it gives us a new proclamation. Because if the gospel, like God says, is the showcase of his great power, it makes sense to see what Peter does here in Acts 3, right? What does Peter do after this miraculous uh, healing that happens to the beggar, and this crowd starts forming around him, and he sees this opportunity? What does he do? Does he start telling him about the great Peter, the miracle worker? No. Does he take an opportunity even now to talk specifically about the miraculous healing powers of Jesus? No. Peter uses this opportunity at the end of chapter 3 and here in chapter 4 to proclaim the true power that's at work in this moment. The gospel. He speaks to the people about Jesus. The one who healed this man is the one who came to heal the world by being the sinless sacrifice for our sin in our place on the cross. And by rising again, Jesus then proves that our sin is atoned for and that death and the curse of sin is defeated as well. And then in that moment, Peter calls them to what? Repent. Telling them that it was their sin, their wickedness that caused Jesus to have to die. That they needed to turn from their sin, turn to Jesus, believe his resurrection, and receive their own newness of life. And this proclamation that in Jesus the resurrection is true was what greatly annoyed the rulers and got Peter and John in trouble. Remember? 
It is our new proclamation. It is the gospel. Because let's be honest, the world that we grew up in, right, is telling us what our proclamation, what our story should be. Right? And our friends here from more Eastern cultures, the world tells us that our proclamation, who we are, is in our, our family identity, or in our national identity, or it's in our honorable place that we've built for ourselves in society. Here in the West, in the United States, the world tells us that our story, our proclamation is in ourselves, in what we can make of ourselves, in our personal expression and individual mark on the world. So those are the stories that we're tempted to make the proclamation of our lives. But the gospel gives us a new and better story, a new proclamation, that our eternal family and identity isn't firstly in our nation or even our bloodline, but our first community and family is in the family of God with our brothers and sisters in Christ. And that our honor doesn't come from the things that we've done, but our honor simply comes by grace for what Jesus has done for us. And it subverts the story here in the West by saying, my life is not my life. I belong to God. Simply by him making me, uh, I belong to him. But then he remakes me through faith in Jesus Christ. I'm doubly his. I am not my own, but I've been bought at a price. And all of this, all of this new proclamation is because of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. That is our new proclamation. It is the gospel that our validation and acceptance has already been met in Jesus. That we don't have to prove ourselves because our acceptance before God is sure. Hear this, family. We are not enough in ourselves. We could never be enough in ourselves, but we are made enough in Jesus. By his grace, we are made worthy. He took our sin on the cross and wraps us up in his perfect righteousness and forever love. Another way to think about it is our old selves and our old story died with him on that cross that day. And our new selves and our new proclamation rose with him in his resurrection. Forever forgiven, forever accepted, forever loved, forever healed. And spoiler alert, we didn't do it. Not by us, but by our risen king who died and rose again for us. Let me just make it clearly. Our story is not about us. Peter says it this way. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. There's one name to talk about and is not yours and is not mine. The Apostle Paul would say it a whole bunch of different ways in his letters, but here's a couple of them. In Galatians, he says this. He says, far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Or maybe you remember in his letter to the Philippians, he's writing from being imprisoned. He says this. Indeed, I count everything as loss. Everything is lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, but count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Hear this, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. Peter's new proclamation, Paul's new proclamation, 
our new proclamation, the gospel of the risen Jesus. So these last couple points I want to highlight quickly. But it says, along with a new power and a new proclamation, being a people of new life in Jesus means we have a new perspective. And to kind of uh, exemplify this, I want to tell a story. How many of you guys remember uh, the 2017 Super Bowl? How many of you guys remember what you had for lunch yesterday? Let's, let's, okay. No, five years ago, I don't expect you to remember. So, uh, spoiler alert, if it's still sitting on your DVR, I'm going to spoil what happens. But in 2017, uh, the, t- uh, the New England Patriots were playing the Atlanta Falcons. And if you don't remember this, uh, the um, story, I'll tell you. It's uh, the third quarter. Eight minutes, 31 seconds left in in the third quarter, so about a quarter and a half left in the game. And the New England Patriots are down 28 to 3 with just a quarter and a half left in the game. Now, at that point, can you imagine being a New England Patriots fan? I mean, just in general, can you imagine being a New England Patriots fan? No, I'm just kidding. That was a cheap shot, kind of. <laughs> uh, no, just kidding. But in that moment, you're rooting for the New England Patriots. Your team is down 28-3, to and there's just over a quarter and a half left of the game. You're thinking, it's over. We're done. We're defeated. We're hopeless. In fact, I know a lot of people that turned the game off. They didn't even watch the rest of the game because it was done. It was over. We well, probably know where this story is going, where in this incredible run in the last quarter and a half of the game, the New England Patriots tie the game send it into overtime, and end up winning the Super Bowl in overtime. So, stick with me. Imagine this. You're a New England Patriots fan, but you couldn't watch the game on Sunday. But you recorded it, and you're going to watch it on Monday. But imagine, before you watched it on Monday, you heard the outcome. You knew for sure that New England won. You knew that it was their victory. So then you turn on the game. When Atlanta scores that first touchdown... Are you scared? When Atlanta scores that second touchdown, are you nervous? Are you anxious? Are you fearful? When it's 8.31 left in the third quarter and your team's down 28-3, to are you worried? Are you defeated? Are you nervous, anxious, ready to give up? No. Why? Because you know the outcome already. You know that victory is assured already. It changes everything between watching the game Sunday with 8.31 left in the third quarter and watching it Monday with 8.31 left. It changes everything when you know the outcome and you know the victory is assured. Now, that's just a silly little football game. But what if it wasn't the outcome of a football game that you knew, but it was the outcome of everything? The whole story, why we exist. While everyone is here, your life story, what if you could know today definitively the outcome of your story and that victory was assured? That your future was full of happiness and joy and healing, love and peace forever. That you knew for sure that every pain would end, that every sadness would dissolve, every longing in your heart would be fulfilled, and every joy made complete. That the entire universe was yours to inherit. And it was more certain than the sun rising tomorrow. How would that change how you live today? How would that give you a new perspective on your life? That's what the resurrection of Jesus does to us. The resurrection of Jesus, seeing his defeat of sin and its curse, seeing the risen Jesus and confirming the future future of perfect healing and joy. 
that is with him. That is our certain future. And it changes everything about our perspective of this moment right now. It means we don't stress when it looks like the enemy is winning. It means we don't have to worry about losing things in this life, like our property or our money or our rights and freedoms or our health or our homes or even our very lives. As others have said, the resurrection of Jesus means that we know the sad things are never the last things. Because we know victory is certain because Jesus is alive. So we can have the same perspective in this life that Peter and John had before the rulers when standing before them, uh, getting threatened and imprisoned and telling them to stop talking about Jesus. What do they say? Whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge, for we cannot but speak of what we've seen and heard. It's a new perspective. God is one. His victory is assured. Do whatever you want to us, because you cannot take our joy you cannot take our treasure. You cannot take our hope. You cannot take our future. It is as certain as our risen king. That's the new perspective that we have as a resurrected people. And lastly, we see here in this story that our new life in Jesus gives us a new purpose. In chapter 4, verse 21, you remember it said this, And when they, the leaders and rulers, had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all were praising God for what had happened. All were praising God. What's the purpose of our life? I mean, that is the question, right? We, we wrestle with that question. Is it to point to ourselves, how great we are, and prove ourselves to a watching world? Or do we, do we live for a new purpose? That how we live out together, this newness of life proclaiming Jesus, that we might see in our church family and in the community all people praising God for what they see happening in us. Wouldn't that be great? If we lived in such a newness of life together that in this room, in the community looking in, would see what God was doing and they would just praise God and maybe throw some of us in jail. But that's, um, but that's why we exist. That's why you exist. That's our purpose, to point people to the greatness of Jesus by whatever means necessary. So we see here, even in this story, that the resurrection of Jesus changes everything about us. It gives us a new power, God's Spirit moving in us and transforming us. And that power is most dramatically displayed in the gospel that saved us. And that becomes our new story, our new proclamation, not proclaiming ourselves, but Jesus, his life, his death, his resurrection for us. And it gives us a new perspective because we know how this story ends. And so we live radically different today. And it gives us a new purpose to glorify God and how we all live out this newness of life together. That God would be praised in us and in our world through how we display him. Because his resurrection is our resurrection. His new life is our new life. So being a people of the resurrection, the people who have newness of life, we could also maybe call that a disciple. Or here at CBC, uh, we use the term fully devoted follower of Christ. In fact, that's in our mission statement, if you're familiar with it. It says the mission of Chantilly Bible Church. 
to make fully devoted followers of Christ who love God and love others. That's why we exist as a church family. And that's, that's just not our mission, by the way. That's the mission Jesus gave us. It's his mission that we're on. So as leaders at CBC, we want to constantly be asking God to show us what it looks like to be most faithful to his mission. What it looks like to be a people of the resurrection who have his spirit moving in us and changing us. Living out this newness of life. And it's shown even in our core values. If you remember, rooted in the word, devoted to prayer, growing more Christ-like, loving lost people, and welcoming all cultures, and living in community. And I mean it. The leaders here at Chantilly Bible Church truly desire that CBC would be a place that does welcome all cultures. And not just the ethnic cultures that we see around us, of our Western cultures, or Asian, or Hispanic, or Indian. Surely those, but more than that. How about the cultures that people bring with them of, of having a churched or an unchurched background? Being single or being married. Different political convictions, different socioeconomic stages, whether you are young or you are previously young. <laughs> whatever stage of life, whatever religious background, Whatever culture you bring with you, we want everyone to know that they are welcome and wanted here. And so our ministries are going to continue to grow and seek God's will and how to create fully devoted followers of Christ at whatever stage and place of life that you find yourself in. And it's with that passion for disciple making that we know God has right now given us an incredible opportunity to invest in building his kingdom through what might be the most unreached people group here at CBC. It's not through our foreign missions, which that's super important. It's not even in our local missionaries or in our church plant. No, the greatest opportunity to reach the unchurched for Christ is right here, right here with us. It's in our CBC family and in our community. It's the unreached people group of our families and children. And whether it's our youngest children or our teens and preteens, God has called us all to steward their little lives well and raise them up in him. And so we have been asking, what does faithfulness in our children's, teens, and parent ministries look like? So building on God's great legacy here of serving children's youth and families well, I want to share with you this morning what we believe God is leading us forward in and how we can best make disciples in the context of families. And I am so excited to tell you about the direction we're moving in. So our children's youth and parenting ministries are going to be under what we are calling family ministries. So there are a lot of reasons for believing God's directions in this, from unifying our vision across age groups, to building strategies for discipleship that sees the family home as the primary place for kingdom building, but also a need to come alongside parents to encourage and equip and empower them in their calling to raise children in the fear of and instruction of the Lord. So some questions I know that probably are already popping up right now. One is, like, what will family ministries look like, and who is going to lead us in this? And so let me answer the second one, and let them answer the first one. Um, so I'll, I'll say this. Since I arrived at CBC, I've been blown away at God's faithfulness in so many aspects of this church family. So many of the leaders inspire me in my walk with Jesus, and my own need to grow in being a pastor, and they energize me to partner with them in the gospel. But one man in particular, since I've arrived, has encouraged and challenged me in so many great ways in Jesus. And even early on, 
I saw his leadership and his integrity and his his vision and how it impacted so many of the lives of people here at CBC. And even then, I began praying about how God might lead this person to have even greater influence over the lives of our entire CBC family. And then I saw this man was not only serving well as a pastor, but he was showing me what it looked like to pastor his family, to love his life well, discipling his children, pastoring his family. And so it only makes sense, and I am incredibly excited to announce that leading our CBC family in this wonderful new direction will be our student ministries pastor, John Ramirez. Yeah. I can think of no other person on the planet uh, that could lead this ministry as well as John for us and step into this role as family ministries pastor. And I am personally, you hear this, and I mean this legitimately, I am personally excited to have my family under his leadership. So I want to invite John to come up and share his heart uh, and vision for CBC and family ministries for a minute. So John, come on up. Sure. Hello. So uh, about 14 years ago, I joined the staff here at, at CBC uh, to serve with uh, worship, with missions, and with young adults, and whatever else right, they can find for me. And, but the more I worked with the young adults, I had this feeling that I really needed to get to know these young adults even before they came in uh, to the group. So I started helping out a little more uh, with youth group, uh, going on their retreats, volunteering for them. And about seven years ago, then the youth pastor said, hey, I'm, I'm leaving to go to seminary. And we were sitting out around in a meeting, and we were wondering, well, who's going to take over? Who's going to take that job? And I was like, yeah, who's going to do that? Right? And uh, I remember it was uh, Pastor BJ who said, hey, you know, you should consider taking it. And it, for me, was a very scary, uh, intimidating proposition. Um, and I didn't take that very lightly, but after you know, praying a whole bunch, talking with the elders, talking uh, with my old youth pastor and the other youth pastors who had served at CBC, you know, I stepped into that hot role seven years ago. And I remember actually someone saying, hey, did you just get demoted? Like that, that somehow like youth ministry was like this kind of lesser uh, ministry. But I, from that point on, I was really kind of determined um, you know, to lead from a place that uh, many people didn't expect leadership from, right? And that first year, I remember putting 1 Timothy 4.12 on the wall right outside the youth room. And it said, uh, don't let anyone look down on you because you're young. But you set the example for the believers in speech, in conduct, in love, uh, in faith, uh, and in purity. And that's uh, been kind of the driving force, the vision uh, for Powerhouse, like leadership early. And I've been blessed to get to know your team and to work with our leaders to disciple them. And uh, the more I've served with youth, uh, I'm starting to get that, that feeling again of, hey, I, I really need to get to know parents more uh, and work with them to give them the resources they need to equip uh, their teens in Christ. Uh, and so we've been doing right, parent boosters, parent Sunday schools, uh, getting Right Now Media and access.org digitally for free for everybody. Uh, giving them, giving you guides on how to talk about dating, how to talk about pornography, um, and we're still wanting to do more to equip you. And so it was Mike who first started asking me, hey, do you, 
see yourself equipping parents in kind of a larger role. And once again, I was like, yeah, who's going to do that? Because <laughs> right. um, I can help you know, parents with teens, but from zero to 18, that's very big and intimidating. Uh, however, as we explored what the family ministry model looked like, it just kind of made sense. Uh, so what is family ministry? Right? So a our mission right, is to make fully devoted followers of Christ who love God and love others. So the family ministry model seeks to impact you know, three groups, right? the parents, uh, children, uh, and the youth. And according to Deuteronomy 6, okay, parents are the primary disciplers uh, of their, their children. Um, and it's not the youth ministry, uh, and it's not children's ministry. It's the parents, according to Deuteronomy 6, who are the primary disciplers of their youth. Um, and children's ministry and uh, youth ministry exist as a secondary discipler to back up what should already be first taught in the home. So the focus of family ministry is to really build up uh, and equip parents to effectively lead and disciple their children. And our vision is that each house, right, will be able to say, as Joshua 24 says, you know, as for me and my house, Okay, we will serve the Lord. Uh, houses and homes that can say we serve the Lord together. And you want to find ways to equip parents uh, even more than what we're doing right now. And to support the family, we will still have a robust children's ministry and youth ministry. Because I know I, I grew up in a home where it was my mom who was the spiritual leader of the house and my, my dad didn't go uh, to church. And so it was a blessing for me to be able to go to a place where I had uh, spiritual mentors and spiritual fathers uh, that I could learn from. And every week, uh, another teen would call me to help to get me to come to youth group, and he made such a difference uh, in my life. And so our children need mature believers uh, other than their parents around them. And they also need a place where they can journey in their faith uh, with other children, other teens, especially as they get older. And so we still need children and youth ministry. And at, at CBC, I see um, children and youth in three different components. You know, treehouse, uh, lighthouse, uh, and powerhouse. So treehouse, lighthouse, and powerhouse all built there to equip your house uh, to effectively do the work uh, of discipling your, your children. So treehouse, uh, early childhood, uh, which is zero to the third grade. And the vision there is 2 Timothy uh, 3.15. Uh, from infancy, you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise unto salvation through Jesus Christ. Uh, so the vision there is for our children to know uh, God's Word and uh, to know the Gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, lighthouse, pre-teens, which is kind of something new for us, fourth through sixth grade. Ephesians 5.8 says, You were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. So walk as children of light. And I believe the current vision in having this uh, new focus on reaching this age group is really important uh, because this is where the light bulb really turns on uh, in uh, their journey of faith at this age. Right? And so as culture seeks uh, to kind of get uh, to these, our kids earlier, we need to have these conversations earlier as well uh, with, our, with our kids. So our vision is preteens okay, who own their faith earlier okay, by challenging them to think critically, uh, ask questions, and make a commitment to Christ. And that's what they're doing right now uh, in the preteen classroom. 
uh, at Powerhouse, right, 7th to 12th grade, uh, 1 Timothy 4, uh, 12. Don't let anyone look down on you because you're young. But you set the example for the believers in speech, in conduct, in faith, in love, uh, and in purity. And I've seen our Powerhouse youth uh, do that. And our vision there is leadership early. Right? If they know who they are in their faith, they know their purpose, they can lead early. You don't need to go uh, to college and try to figure out who you are when you already know who you are here as a high schooler. All right, so Treehouse, Lighthouse, and Powerhouse, I hope, will be a more cohesive theme, uh, a team that communicates better with each other and they know what each other is doing. They're not ministry silos. Uh, each will have a shared and united vision in equipping and helping parents reach uh, their, their kids for Christ. Because as we've seen kind of in the two years of pandemic, right, if we don't have Treehouse, we don't have Lighthouse, we don't have Powerhouse because we can't meet, then if we have built up our parents, then they are still effectively doing the work of discipleship uh, in their home, even if we can't meet together. Um, so that other question, yeah, who will be doing all this? Hey, to focus on equipping and serving parents, uh, we have to assemble a family ministry team, which uh, will serve alongside uh, our volunteers. So kind of the family pastor is kind of this new position uh, that will head up the family ministry team, right, to one, equip parents, and two, to connect all these leaders together uh, to fulfill the biblical calling for spiritual growth in the home. Right? And so this is kind of the role that I'm very intimidated, but excited to kind of step into. Uh, I'm excited to uh, work with Pam and with Jenny uh, to assemble uh, a new team together, and we'll be looking to hire right, new teammates uh, to work with Treehouse, uh, Lighthouse, and Powerhouse. And so please pray as we look for and as we solidify uh, these roles. Uh, when is this going to happen? The very optimistic time frame is hopefully in the fall um, to have a family ministry team that's set uh, to go at the start of the school year. Um, so we need your prayers. You know, we can make our plans, but the Lord directs our steps. Um, so we need you to pray as well about maybe what part you can be playing uh, in this. Um, uh, <laughs> it's a powerhouse. I'm still here. Okay. Um, and what, what I don't want you to hear um, is... Uh, is John will not be here, okay? Because I'm, I'm still here. <sighs> ah, sorry. Um, but I believe I'm, I'm stepping into a role that I believe will bless your family even more. Okay? Um, I'll still be involved in, in Powerhouse, but in a very different way. So my seventh grade small group, right, um, I will still be your small group leader and move up with you all the way through uh, as you graduate. Um, as I finish up this seventh year, I'm still your youth pastor and uh, all the way th through till we find who is the next one. Okay, so uh, pray alongside me and uh, you're welcome to ask me any questions and um, you're welcome to be part of this, uh, this transition that we're making. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you, John. Um, you guys heard it. There's a couple things when John was sharing his vision with me that, man, really hit me. One, I love the, hey, it's, there's four components of our family ministry, treehouse, 
life, a lighthouse, powerhouse, and your house. <laughs> Uh, and I love that because what John told me when he kind of mapped this out with me, that just, especially even with my own young family, he showed me the circle. He's like, we, like he just said, we've seen in the pandemic that bottom half of that circle can be taken out at any moment. Something can come along to say we can't do that, we can't meet. But that top half of the circle, that's going to be with these children for the rest of their lives. So how do we make a better job investing in the kingdom by investing and coming alongside our parents? So I'm very excited about that. So kind of to wrap up, family, here's uh, kind of like John said, what we need from you. There's really a few things. One, like John said, we need your prayers. Uh, J- uh, Jesus makes it very clear in John 15. He says, apart from me, you can do nothing. We can build the biggest programs. We can put a lot of money to it. We can create all these different things. But if Jesus is not a part of it, we're not doing anything. <clears throat> but second thing I would hope that we could ask from you is patience. Uh, patience, because while you know John's not changing roles immediately, we will be moving forward in this transitional process. Like John said, praying and asking God to bring some people to our team, uh, making uh, ministry plans and even updates to our children's wings. So please give us patience uh, as we aim for the fall. We'll definitely keep you guys in communication with how things are going. Um, and finally, what we need from you is participate. Family ministry is not just for those who have families. It's for all of us. It's going to take all of us to love and care for and raise up the next generation of disciples of Jesus. So you have a part to play from serving to supporting financially, to praying, to whatever God lays on your heart. We all have a part to play in family ministry. So I would encourage you, a great way to show John your support is to come up to him and say, John, I'm in. What do you need? Let's do this. But all of this, all of this plan, all of these ministries, not, the, these, not just these ministries, but all the things we do here are rooted in the story that we talked about at the beginning. It's the true story of the uh, resurrection of Jesus that changes everything about us. It's all about Jesus. It's all about making fully devoted followers of him. And it's about living out that newness of life that his resurre- resurrection brings to all of us. So on that celebratory note, let's close in prayer. Let's pray for John. And let's respond to God with songs, celebrating the new life and new hope we have in Jesus because our King is alive. So let's pray. Lord Jesus, we confess your resurrection is true, that you are alive right now at the right hand of the Father, and we're speaking to our risen King. And your resurrection has brought new life to us. I pray we would be people who are new, people who have a new power, people who have a new proclamation a new perspective, and a new purpose. Lord, we pray for John. We thank you for his um, legacy of effective ministry and loving our families. We are excited to see what you're going to do through him, his leadership, and his life going forward. And I pray for us as a church body that you would call upon us right now to ask ourselves, what is our role? What is our role in this new direction as a church? But in all of this, Lord, we pray and proclaim the victory of our risen King over all things. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Thank you.